I'm not making this up. Who has a safety deposit box full of money and six passports and a gun? Who has a bank account number in their hip? I can tell you the license plate numbers of all six cars outside. I can tell you that our waitress is left-handed and the guy sitting up at the counter weighs 215 pounds and knows how to handle himself. I know the best place to look for a gun is the cab of the gray truck outside. And at this altitude, I can run flat out for a half mile before my hands start shaking. Now, why would I know that? How can I know that and not know who I am? This is the Bourne Retrospective Series by Now Playing. Jason Bourne, welcome to the program. Hosted by Jacob. We are all trained to kill, but he was the best. Stuart. He's seen things. He knows things. And Arnie. They don't make mistakes. They don't do random. There's always an objective, always a target. This podcast may contain detailed plot spoilers and mild language. You don't let me know this? You never wanted to before. Listener discretion is advised. This is not a drill, soldier. We're clear on that. This is a live project. You're a go. We'll see you on the other side. Today we're discussing The Born Ultimatum, starring Matt Damon, Julia Stiles, David Stratham, Scott Glenn, Patty Considine, Edgar Ramirez, Albert Finney, and Joan Allen, directed by Paul Greengrass. This is Arnie, your born co-host of Now Playing. Stuart in LA. And this is the host with the standing kill order on him, Jacob. Well, they said they weren't necessarily going to make another one, but come on, right? Supremacy was a huge hit. There's three original Robert Ludlum novels. I think they kind of had to. If it wasn't going to be Greengrass and Damon, somebody was going to finish this out. Listening to the commentary, it was always the plan that Greengrass and Damon were going to do two more. They may have played a little coy in the press, but they were thinking about three actively while doing two and hooks that they could put in. You keep mentioning those books, Stuart. I can't imagine. I'm sure you'll talk about it on Books and Notches. <laughs> I can't imagine, though, that this ultimatum is anything like the book ultimatum. I don't know how they could film what I read in that book. Ooh, I'm already subscribing to Books and Notches to hear that then. Even if you go to Wikipedia and read the plot summary, I laughed. I was like, oh, if only it were that coherent. I mean, there are <laughs> <laughs> so many things. I will say this much about Robert Ludlum. At that point in his career, by 1990, when that book got published, I think even his biggest fans were starting to grumble, oh, he's not as good as he used to be. And that's an understatement. He definitely was, his worst writing impulses were given free reign, and he really had a hard time, I think, focusing on the story. What he wanted to do, I think was right for the trilogy, was bring back Carlos the Jackal, the character from the original, and it was the, the rematch, one that would finally kill Carlos and you know it gets into some of their training and all of that but otherwise no there's no relation between the book and this movie thank god well I really hate these movies titles yeah one two three I don't know which one to watch for the podcast well when I'm thinking about these I have seen all these movies before and in my mind the first one is the Born Identity Jason Bourne 
doesn't know who he is. The second one should be called the Born Ultimatum, as Born gives an ultimatum. <laughs> leave me alone or I'm coming after you. They don't leave him alone. He goes after them. That's a Born Ultimatum. The third one, Jason Born's in control. That's the Born Supremacy. What is the ultimatum in this one? I don't get any of these titles. They're just going with the books, but it means nothing to the movie yeah the names don't mean anything yeah and i'm the newbie here i haven't seen this one i'm just hoping for some answers who was born or david webb we got that name drop last time who is this character that's all i really want to know i i'm giving this film an ultimatum give me some answers i don't know that i need that kind of answer i mean who is james bond the closest I got to that was in Skyfall, and... James Bond never woke up with a laser pointer with a Zurich bank account in his neck. Yeah, I think that although Bond would obviously take some cues, Casino Royale came out the year before this movie, the realism, grounding it a little bit, I still feel like the Bond franchise is a lot more about frivolous fun, whereas this movie is a lot more about tension and action or at least certainly this one that's what i remembered coming back to born ultimatum was this was the one where they finally had the money to do whatever it is that they wanted and it was a big old hit this is the biggest installment of the franchise with multiple oscar wins and it appeared on many best of the year critics list this is the favorite i think most people would tell you this was matt damon Greengrass at their peak. What was funny is hearing Greengrass on the commentary say, we had all this money and we had to do everything we could to not lose the aesthetic we had of the last one. We could have shut down Waterloo, but we wanted to keep the people in the background and try to keep the same kind of guerrilla style that worked in Supremacy. Yeah, all that money, not a single tripod bot. <laughs> <laughs> I'll grumble about that later. Yeah, no, this one, I definitely feel like they push even that. If you've struggled with the handheld and the fast cutting, this won't be easier to watch. I'll just leave it at that. But I've only seen this movie once. And to be fair, I had sort of an experience where I wasn't giving it my total full attention. I had gone to the drive-in. Longtime listeners know, if you listen to our review of Rob Zombie's Halloween, I saw that movie at a drive-in on a double bill this this was the double bill. This is what I saw after Halloween. <laughs> what a weird double bill. <laughs> well, the way it is, is there's four screens and you can just drive to whichever one you want to see next. And this was the one that I thought looked the most appealing. But yeah, not necessarily simpatico here. They're both violent. I'll, I'll give you that. <laughs> I saw this when it was brand new on Blu-ray. I didn't go to theaters for it. Just a very busy summer for me, but I definitely want to see what was billed as the conclusion of a trilogy. You know, by the time it was on video, they were already taking the rumblings. Greengrass wasn't going to come back for another. Damon wasn't coming back without Greengrass. So I was curious to see how they wrapped it up and why Julia Stiles keeps coming back. <laughs> she's like the new Marie in this one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she's finally given something to do. She's going to get her hair dyed and a haircut. <laughs> Julia's going to get some style. <laughs> I don't know about that. But... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know if I mean that either. Why don't we talk about the plot 
and we can get into the action of Bourne Ultimatum, Arnie. Six weeks after Bourne was in Moscow during Supremacy, British reporter Simon Ross is investigating the CIA project Blackbriar, which was the covert ops assassination parent project of Treadstone, which gave the world Bourne. This puts the reporter in the sights of CIA Deputy Director Noah Vosen, played by David Stratham. But Jason Bourne, again played by Matt Damon, seeks out Ross to find out the secrets of Blackbriar. He meets the reporter in London's Waterloo Station, but Vosen orders them both killed, and a sniper does take out Ross. Of course, Bourne escapes, but the CIA is on his trail, and they bring into assist Pam Landy, who hunted Bourne in the last film, and is again played by Joan Allen. Bourne follows Ross's clues to Madrid, where he encounters Treadstone Tech Nikki, again played by Julia Stiles. This time, Nikki offers to help Bourne, and the two continue hunting for secrets while on the run from assassins. But Landy uncovers that Vosen is the head of a sanctioned CIA assassination squad, and Treadstone was under their purview. Landy wasn't really brought in to help, but to be a fall guy if too much information got out. To save herself, Landy leaks to Bourne the location of the old Treadstone training facility, and Bourne comes to New York, breaking into Vosen's office and stealing the top-secret files about the CIA assassinations. Then he goes to the training facility where he gives the files to Landy and confronts Dr. Albert Hirsch, played by Albert Finney, who was the head of Treadstone's behavior modification program. During this conversation, Bourne remembers everything that he'd previously forgotten, and he leaves Hirsch alive as he flees, but he's shot and falls into the water. Landy faxes the top-secret files to the press to cover her own ass, and Bourne swims away alive as credits roll. Now, I mentioned that this movie did win an Oscar, Best Editing, and I think part of why it deserved that trophy is the clever way in which it sandwiched this whole story in between what I thought was the climax and the epilogue of the last movie. I had no idea that the adventure would take place in between the two scenes we saw. Yeah, it's not a sequel, it's an interquel. So you think Tokyo Drift should get an editing award too? They Tokyo Drift this movie! It was my favorite of the series, I think. <laughs> Maybe Fast Five. But yeah, we're back in Moscow. I can't quite figure out, has he, is he still making his way to the daughter to apologize? Or is this just him getting away? Or does it even matter? Yeah, I don't think it matters. We're never told why the Moscow police are after him, shooting him. I thought that was going to become apparent at some point, but no, it's just the intro here. I think it had to be that car chase. Yeah, it was said in the commentary and things, this is after the apology. He's leaving from that. So it's just before that last phone call scene. And Greengrass said he realized that that phone call scene really made no sense. Why did Bourne go back to New York after Moscow just to stalk Landy and make a phone call while he sees her? The problem is you're not going to know that phone call got Tokyo drifted into like well into this film. Like that's going to finally pop up and totally shock me. But yeah, here at the beginning, I'm just confused because he's still, I thought he went to New York. Now he's back in Moscow getting shot. The fact that people are after him though, did you see that car chase? I mean, it's obvious that they wouldn't just let him go. Yeah, sure. I, I would have thought that would have been closer to him getting away from the scene of the crime. But another thing they're doing here, and I think it's definitely intentional, they do it a lot in this movie, is that they stage a scene to look like a scene that we've already seen before. That I thought with, with him getting on and off these 
subway trams that like, oh, did, is this that moment? And then I was like, no, that was Berlin in the last movie here. But they do a lot with playing with our memory. I think that that's the way that they keep it in that born universe. You know, who am I and all of that. They're playing with our memory of the first two movies. And because I have seen the previous two in close succession now, I was able to catch a lot of parallels that I didn't upon my first viewing. And of course, part of that, I guess that born motif that you would expect in a born film are flashbacks. We're going to get flashbacks here at the beginning. Will you commit to the program? Looking like he's getting, I don't know, tortured, a bag put over his head. Of course, we're never quite sure. We'll see some waterboarding later on. I was wrong. I think last week, what I was struggling to remember was how Brian Cox would play into the plot. And the truth is... Yeah, you said he was coming back. He just looks a lot like Albert Finney. I I got it confused. But this is a new character. This is Albert Hirsch, the man that made Bourne who he is. And the tease of this opening is that once we finally get back to Albert Finney, then all will be explained. And he'll be able to finally have that vengeance that he is owed after three movies. And we have another new bad guy, too. And that's... Ezra Kramer, Scott Glenn. He's always playing the bad guy. I always think of him. Or or rather the official that's difficult to like. I mean, even in Silence of the Lambs, I remember him saying things to Clarice that made you kind of hate him. And he was the killer. Spoiler alert in Backdraft. And I think he has kind of played the officious. I suspected him, as I guess what I would say. I think it's supposed to be a surprise that we don't learn until the middle of the movie that he's the new bad. We think that it's his underling, Noah Vosen, but in fact, they're in cahoots together. That, In fact, Noah, if anything, is just being loyal to a corrupt CIA boss. Really? Because I feel like you just don't trust the CIA in these movies. Like, Joan Allen, that's the only one I feel I can trust anyone else's suspect here. I just assume they're all bad. And I never really trusted Pam Landy in the last movie. I mean, she seemed... Honorable, but she also was on the hunt for Bourne, as was Brian Cox in the first movie, and we saw what happened to him in the second one, so... Yeah, but she told Bourne his birth date, and that he's from Kentucky or whatever. Yeah, I actually feel like she has the more interesting storyline than Bourne in this movie. Am I wrong? Is there anything more to learn about Jason Bourne? Maybe I'm spoiled because I read the books and all, but I feel like... I mean, yeah, we could learn about his history before he enlisted, but by and large, we understand the conspiracy as much as we're going to, right? I think it's more interesting to watch her realize that she's working for bad people than Bourne, who at this point knows that all these people are corrupt. Yeah, I'll say one of my problems with this movie is that Bourne is revealed to not be very interesting. Like, I've sat here for three movies wondering who this guy is, and we found out he just volunteered for the program. I (laughs) assumed that's what had happened. Like, I was disappointed that there wasn't anything else to find out. We don't find out if he has a wife and child in Vietnam or wherever. I I do agree, though. Pam Landy, hers is the more interesting story because she's dealing with... Yeah, CIA directors, you know, finding out that Treadstone, there's an even deeper Treadstone. Blackbriar, which, I don't know, that may be a reference to the book. In the book, believe it or not, Jason Bourne, or David Webb, to be more accurate, has a black friend, and they, they call each other Br'er Rabbit <laughs> and talk about the Briar Patch and all. Uh, maybe that's a reference. I don't know. 
Blackbriar was mentioned in the very first Born Identity movie when Brian Cox goes to that green screen Senate committee. Oh, okay. And when he says Project Treadstones on Ice, but hey, I need some funding for Operation Blackbriar. Ah, okay. I did not catch that. It's just Treadstone by another name so that attention is diverted away from the failures of Treadstone and they have more money. I mean, Blackbriar is going to be revealed to be like the Umbrella Corporation that runs all these weird super soldier programs like Treadstone. Yeah, I feel like it's a rebranding. It was like, oh, people don't like Treadstone anymore. The word is out that this went bad, but we can kind of do what we're doing. We're not going to give up our mission. And I do feel like, man, this was definitely made in the Bush years because the themes here are so prevalent here about, you know, Patriot. Do we trust people? Do we give them the power to do all of these things? How do we hold people accountable? These were the questions of the time. And I do think it's part of the reason why this movie was so praised. I'm even going to say overpraised, at least in terms of the script. I've always felt like this movie was a little too simplistic because, yeah, Bourne himself, not a particularly dynamic arc. And a lot of what he's doing when he's not running around and fighting is just kind of skulking. I mean, he has one scene where where we have useless cameo for this movie. I pointed out in the past that we've had techies that went on to have movie careers. This time it's Daniel Bruhl, who was most recently in the last Captain America movie, and he was in Inglorious Bastards. Here he has a nothing scene as Marie's brother in Paris, who is reassured that Bourne is going to catch who killed Marie. I was really trying to figure out the importance of that scene. Like, <laughs> we've never seen Marie's family. Why does Bourne have to go, like, reconcile with her brother? You say this one for editing. I feel the editing is so much looser in this film. Maybe the Academy awarded this for the last film, because this editing, it's just not as tight. And it's not the editing, it's the story writing. I mean, it's why are we going here? Edit this scene out is what I'm saying. <laughs> this movie's pretty short, though. It's the longest of the trilogy. There's a lot of things going on here, though. I mean, we jump six weeks, so we should be all very forgiven for thinking, hey, the phone call happens in the middle of this movie. There's six weeks in which Bourne could have gone anywhere, including to New York and made a phone call. That six-week jump is not really explained. And then, yeah, we have this scene which it's there. I had a suspicion, and Greengrass confirmed it on the commentary. It's there because they needed to make a film that could be the first Bourne film anyone saw. So we need an exposition way to bring people up who may not have seen the first two or may not remember the ones very well about Marie and everything. Or just can't keep these in order because they're not called one, two, and three. Well, that wasn't a problem when there were only two, and this was <laughs> the third. Yeah, I always want to do that. I mean, I do think that that was some of the grumblings I heard about Captain America were from people that the last one was people hadn't seen the first two. And so they felt incredibly lost. You want to be able to help anybody that's showing any kind of curiosity about your franchise to be able to walk into any installment and go, oh, okay, that's what these are about. So yeah, it's basically just a way for us to understand that Bourne had a girlfriend that is dead. And we also have some flashbacks to establish that. We have some techie people that go over the files and point at her picture it's underlined three or four different times yeah so this is the most obvious way of doing it and it gives matt damon a chance to emote it shows him hurt you know it's trying to recreate the emotional 
scene that ended the last film to start this film and bring people up to speed and say, hey, he's a nice guy, even though we're not going to see him do very nice things for quite some time. Right. Yeah, I agree. And it's the right impulse at this point. I mean, before the way that I saw the last movie is before he could really say, I need vengeance, he needed to look at his own role in Marie's death. And now that he's made his atonement, made his apologies, he is now ready to go after the people that made him born. That's really who is responsible. That's the way that he sees it at any rate. So this is the born ultimatum, but he's the one on the hunt. So he's supreme. I don't understand his motivation, actually, in this film. <laughs> he lost his lover, and he is haunted by flashbacks that distract him. He actually is almost overtaken by some guards in Russia because he's, you know, lost in thought. You just described the last film. <laughs> well, okay. I mean, I'll repeat what I just said. I don't think that this is a very interesting script. No, I agree there. I agree. <laughs> I think when people talk about how good this movie is, they're talking about how much larger scale the set pieces are. But it feels like a very short movie. It's under two hours, and I feel like there's only really four scenes in it. There's a London scene, there's a Spain scene, there's a Tangier scene, and then there's a New York scene. And they all kind of feel like one big montage each. And so consequently, the pace, all of this movie, the fast cutting, all of it, it just feels like, wow, you could almost have made this the climax to the last movie. You could have almost just made that last movie a little longer and done Ultimatum as the last half hour. It's not that short. It's an hour 55 minutes. I mean... Yeah, it's the longest of the trilogy. What? Well, maybe by a minute or so. I mean, they're all... <laughs> Well, yeah, none of them are Gandhi, but shit, it's not a short film. It's not an 89-minute Friday the 13th. So I think you're being a little dismissive. And while it may not have a very interesting motivation for Bourne, they cut some scenes that I saw that actually explain his motivation and show him actively on the hunt for the person who hired Marie's killer. You know, he got Carl Urban in the last film, but he wants to know... Carl Urban was the gun, and who pulled the trigger? Yeah, his boss was arrested, though, wasn't he? Yeah. Well, the oil pipeline boss, and Brian Cox was found out, but, all right, I guess he has no motivation at all. Yeah, where else to go with that storyline? <laughs> <laughs> There's more to tell, damn it. We need to make three. And so, yes, three feels like a remake of two, but on a grander scale. So let's just talk about what it is good at. Once we get back to London, we have what is a really fun chase in which we see how Bourne can outthink a whole team of people that have been assigned to catch him or rather survey the person that he needs to talk to. Yeah, this reporter, Simon Ross, they cut the scenes that where Bourne finds out about Ross and where Ross meets his contact, all stuff that would have helped me to understand exactly what's going on. But once this scene happens, I get all I need to know. I just have to ignore the lack of setup and get a really good scene. It reminded me of the scene in the opera house in one of those Mission Impossibles with the sniper on the catwalk. But this is better edited than that and more exciting because it's all happening by cell phone. You know, Matt Damon's talking to Ross on phone and telling him what to do. Ross is panicking. The sniper's upstairs and he's getting his orders by phone. You mentioned the Bush era. This entire movie takes on a whole new inference after Snowden in my mind and the whole techno attack was really resonating techno attack 
<laughs> what, what underground and and basement jacks? What are you talking about? <laughs> I'm talking about like just the technology used where they're like Ross says Blackbriar on a phone, and they have tapped everybody's phone. So anyone who says Blackbriar, you're targeted now. But that is, I mean, Snowden was the Bush era. I mean, that was when he was employed. I mean, we think of him now giving the leak, but that was what he was witnessing. That's exactly what we're talking about. Patriot allowed people to go beyond what we thought was permissible and that our own privacy was disappearing and we may not have known it. Yeah, but when this movie came out in 2007, it was Paranoid Fantasy. There's a lot of people that were suspect of Bush yeah. and the Patriot Act and all that. It was a part of the dialogue, but we didn't have the proof until Snowden put it out there. Yet I feel like the NSA, when they're tapping everyone's phones and listening in, and did they say Blackbriar? Like, I feel it would probably be a lot less exciting in real life than in this film. Though I don't know if this is exciting. You get a lot of, again, shaky cam shots of, he said the word, get me guys, get me a camera, Get where is he fighting? Like, you get a lot of people yelling in an office, and I like it when we're in the crowd and we're seeing the action. It just, it keeps cutting back to those office scenes, I guess, to remind us who the bad guys are. Again, the last Last film, I feel like it was cut much tighter. This, again, we're, I'm talking about seconds that should be cut here. It's just too much shaky camp, too much heads yelling in an office. Are you saying you feel disoriented? Yes. Okay. Not in a good way. I, I feel like I'm on a roller coaster getting a headache. I actually really like it. I think it adds a sense of urgency to the scenes, you know? It's hard to make scenes of people typing into a computer exciting. I think Greengrass pulls it off. Oh, Bourne's going to Google the hell out of a scene later on. <laughs> It is a chase, but the thing that's really chasing him is David Strathairn. It, it's the real bad guy that's sitting in that office. I mean, yeah, there's lots of guys with knockout hypodermics and bullies and all of that, but that's not the real chase. The real chase is the brain in the control room trying to stay ahead of the brain that's trying to get to this reporter here. And I just, I think Bourne is just shows cleverness. The idea that you can buy a burner phone and just slip it into his pocket and now they think they have all his phones tapped, but there's one that they don't. So, I mean, that was really clever, I thought. And another one was the way that, you know, he just kind of sidled up next to a guy in a hoodie, and it just looked like he was whispering in his ear. So the, that poor man gets hauled away. <laughs> <laughs> I did like that scene. So Simon Ross, they want him because he knows about Blackbriar. We saw that he published like a, at least a three-part article on who is Jason Bourne. We see Jason Bourne reading that. Why wasn't it until Blackbriar was mentioned that they wanted him? Or is that part of the Bourne story? Well, Bourne was national media or international media. I mean, Bourne, everything he'd done had gotten attention and been on the news. And we saw that in the previous ones. So a reporter... Talking about Bourne isn't a big deal. In one of the scenes that was cut, though, we got to see him meet with the contact who was drawn to this guy after he talked about Bourne and was going to leak top secret files. And this guy, Neil Daniels, who works for the CIA, is going to be giving him these files. And of course, Vosen, Shades of Snowden, is saying treason and hanging all these words out there. So it, that's why they become interested in him, only because of Blackbriar. Treadstone and Bourne, those are pretty public already. Well, here's a thing to bring up. You're saying Snowden, like this guy is doing it because people need to know. I don't think that's the truth. I think that this guy is living a very comfortable life in Spain in an investment bank. 
and doesn't want his past with a black ops, treadstone, secret brainwashing operation to come to light. The way that I read this is you have a very good London reporter who assembles all these facts, confronts him. We do see the scene where he goes to a cafe and is like, tell me about Blackbriar. And the guy is like, turn off the tape. I'm going to speak to you off the record. To me, that means... I don't really want to be telling you this, but you probably have information that can expose me. So in order to save myself, I'm going to give up someone higher than me. I don't think he's a good guy, though. I don't think that this mole is doing it for Snowden reasons. I think he was backed into a corner by this reporter, Simon Ross. Likewise, the the CIA, you know, whether it's Daniels getting pushed in this corner or, or Noah with the CIA, they didn't even realize Bourne was helping him until this whole scene at the Waterloo station, like when they finally see him on some camera. And then that's when they give the asset a green light to, you know, start sniping them out. I mean, I was surprised the CIA wasn't on to Bourne. It seems like they had forgotten about him. Well, they had no reason to think he was involved with this. And in fact, he wasn't until this very moment. They're catching born at his first time meeting the reporter but they were just good to let him go like if born had gone to india with marie at this point no problems well you don't know what they were going to do we're going to see ultimately that david strathairn's character is very paranoid and will kill anyone that's a threat and there doesn't seem to be an end to it so maybe eventually they'd go after born but i think they respect born's ability at of self-preservation and why why stir that hornet's nest they're more concerned right now with damage control they want to make sure that their big boss Ezra does not get put on the witness stand and so they're cleaning it up that's the way I take it and this reporter is creating problems I think the sniper is for him mostly the fact that Bourne is there just makes it complicated and of course Ross doesn't listen to Bourne I, my favorite part is like the janitor he's grabbing he's like it's just a janitor no he's grabbing a gun I mean I, I guess if I was in Ross's shoes i would be panicking too we all would come on we did, must admit <laughs> i played that game i really did i sat around and i'm like what would i do if i was in that situation and you know what we would all think we're action heroes we would all think we know what to do and we would all get shot in the head i would find a bathroom and lock myself in there i'd just hide and piss my pants. <laughs> yeah, but you know, he had just slipped behind a store and the people were finding him. I mean, I do feel like, and, and the editing in this way does help. It, it just increases the sense that danger could come from anywhere. That everyone all of a sudden has a cell phone. And I mean, any of these people could be undercover about to get you. And so, I mean, I can't blame him for running for it, even though Bourne is telling him no, no, no. But yeah, who knew that they had a guy behind the billboard? I mean, this is an extreme step. I mean, even for the CIA, for them to assassinate in broad daylight a well-known reporter who has been already publishing several articles about them would make them look guilty in the public's eye, I would think. It would cause more questions to be asked. Yeah, and that's the real shock here that Landy has to face is it's against the law. It is against all rules for the U.S., to have sanctioned assassinations of political enemies. And yet what this is happening is that we're violating that treaty again and we are 
going to just have this operation sanctioned from the president on down that we are pulling assassinations and Voison has the authority to order that hit in the middle of Waterloo Station in the full population. Killing the reporter is the least of their problems. What if the sniper had missed? What if somebody had gotten in the way? <laughs> yeah, no, that's that's bad for the CIA. But again, I, I get the sense that they would just cover it up. I mean, it's one thing to, to send a, a secret assassin team to go kill a well-known dictator. You know, we had one bossy in the first movie and who knows what he was guilty of. I, you could, in your mind, justify that there it was a, a means to an end. But here, we know that this reporter is just doing his job doing a good job and their response is instead of dealing with it lawyers and answering the questions is to call in the operative with the sniper rifle yeah it really makes you realize that this guy this david strathairn character has to go yeah i mean as said later on no more red tape that's the whole point of blackbriar they could uh, operate independently and do whatever they want and i think we all agree no matter how much we might want to trust our government institutions there has to be some level of accountability ability and that's that is the line that we can all see being crossed whether you think that this guy is quote a bad guy or not overall by sanctioning these kills in this case his paranoia has led him to become a monster and strangely i'm still more offended by the cell phone tapping than i am the assassination they killed one person but how many millions of phones are they tapping and searching the words of I mean, this does, not a government institution, but I remember the story about a, a journalist. They had something, and they had a Rupert Murdoch's corporation hack their phone and withheld information for a story. I mean, this kind of paranoia, I feel, timely paranoia, I feel, the Bourne movies are, have been able to tap into pretty well thus far. Yeah, I wish this did feel like a period film. I wish I could say, oh yeah, that was so 10 years ago. But no, <laughs> these are our concerns even more so now. Privacy is becoming more and more threatened. And I don't know when these concerns will be alleviated, frankly. Yes, but fortunately, this movie is far more about visceral thrills. It asks those questions. That may be why the Academy was willing to give it a second look. But... We're really going to get in the thick of the action now that the reporter is killed and Bourne has to just, again, follow tenuous clues and... He took his notebook, right? After Ross is shot, he takes his mm -hmm. notebook and that's why I say he Googles the hell out of it. There are some intense looks <laughs> as he's typing in keywords. <laughs> yeah, that's why I think that Ross had this guy against the wall is that they were hand scribbled. I don't know if they'd hold up in a court of law, but he seemed <laughs> to have been building a case against Treadstone for quite some time. And so that he just had the goods on this guy in Spain. That is the lead that Bourne follows that takes him to this investment bank where Neil has already fled. You know, he took the top secret information out of the safe. He's wiring some money to him in Africa and he's trying to get away from everybody. Yeah, these Bourne films love banks. I I'm like, a whole other bank scene's coming up, isn't it? Yeah, but he's not working with Julian Assange. He's not trying to, oh, protect me from doing the leak. No, no, no. He's... Wanting to live a comfortable life and not give up what he, the good he had going on here. But born, we get another action scene and another surprise. 
Nikki works in the same office randomly. Yeah, she just happens to always show up in the right place for to be in these movies. <laughs> I wasn't even sure it was random, but I, I guess that's the case. I, I thought maybe she was embedded there. We have a team coming up the stairs while Bourne is searching the office, but she's not a part of that team and she wasn't called in by that team. It plays to me as complete coincidence that she was reporting to work a few minutes after Bourne takes out some people with a fan and a pen light. But she's talking to Noah, right? She calls into the CIA. She does decide to protect him, that there are code words to let people know that you're in trouble and code words to let you know that everything is okay. And she gives the clear to say, I'm fine, Bourne is gone, the guys are down, and... You know, that buys them enough minutes for her to run off with Bourne. That's right, because Noah doesn't trust her and makes her do the secret words. Yeah, I don't read it that way because when she hangs with the phone, she's like, we have three minutes. I mean, whatever she said brought the people. No, no, no. Rewatch the scene. Strathairn is looking at the code words. I think it's Ruby means I'm in trouble and Everest means... I'm okay. I mean, they're still going to come anyway because they're going to send another team. It's born. They're going to keep coming, but they don't believe that she is a hostage. And thus, it gives her a few minutes to get away with Bourne. I was confused because they told her on the phone like she has an hour, and then she hangs up and tells Bourne they have three minutes, so I didn't know if they were onto her and knew she was lying. That's why I thought she gave the code words that say, hey, he's here, but yet still was giving a chance to escape. No, no, it's... She feels guilt. We will find out in, in their scene later that she has some remorse as well, that Bourne is not the only one that wants to atone, that she wants to help this guy because I guess she saw some things while he was being turned into the super assassin that he became, the, the killing machine, that she feels... Like she played a part in that that she would like to make amends for. Where did you get that? Because I was wondering why she, after two movies, and the last movie, he was kind of brutal to her with that gun. Mm -hmm. So I was curious why in this movie she decided to help him out. We do have, a, I call them the echo scenes, scenes that remind us of earlier scenes. There was a scene in Born Identity with Jason and Marie in a truck stop. It was where he was like, why do I know how to do these things and can run 30 minutes and all of that? We have a very similar looking scene. It's shot very similar. The cafe looks very similar between Nikki and Bourne. And it's for her to kind of say, she never says it specifically, but I feel like burbling underneath that, you know, that Bourne is telling her what he remembers about Daniels. And, you know, she's like, but you don't remember this. She feels guilty. I mean, I, I read it in her face. Congratulations, Julia Stiles. You actually get to act this time. <laughs> and so I, I do. It's mostly the performance and what's not being said in that scene. Yeah, they mirror so much stuff from identity here. I mean, the dyeing her hair, cutting it. I'm like, okay, is this going to lead to a, a sex scene like in that first film? Mm -hmm. It does feel like they're almost setting up Nikki to be the next Marie. Is this going to be a love interest here? My, my big problem is, though, when you're having these dramatic moments where they're saying these things that expressing this guilt that damn camera is still shaking i don't know why it's shaking during dramatic scenes <laughs> i don't know if it would be distracting if all of a sudden we had still shots it was distracting that it was moving i it took me out if we only limit the handheld cinema verite is is i think what the style is called if we only limit that to the scenes where we know it's action i guess 
we know when we're in danger and not. So if the camera's always moving, maybe it always makes us feel ill at ease. And it sounds like it made you just ill. No, just ill and annoyed. Yeah, you're right. I think that it gave this entire film kind of a kinetic sense of energy. I never feel, even during dramatic scenes, that this film is slowing down. Mm -mm. After it hits the gas in Waterloo, this movie books, and even the scenes where people are talking, were being revealed information, you know? I think this is the most action-oriented of the trilogy so far, and even when they're talking, they're revealing, and so that adds to that feeling. I Again, I kept calling this movie short because I do not feel any lags in this movie. I feel, and it, it's probably, again, as much the way that it's cut and shot as it is scripted, but I just feel like, yeah, no, this thing is just moving and moving and moving. The, the fact that we're now going to the third of four scenes, as I'll call it, the Tangiers part. I mean, half the movie is already over, and I feel like Bourne has just gotten started. And this was a really cool scene because there's the other assassin there going after Daniels, and I really think Bourne has saved him. Bourne stops the car, the guy's dropped the bomb. I think everything's safe, but no, that's one hell of a high-powered bomb. Yeah, I thought this was going to be... They fooled me in identity, too, when they shoot the the African dictator. I, I thought they would reveal that that was faked. Yeah, he drops that bomb, and Bourne stops him, and then that explosion goes off. We see Bourne gets thrown by it, but I thought, you know, we were going to see Daniels alive later on, but no, he's, he's gone from the film. Yeah, it's seems like what was accomplished by chasing all this way we did all of this and you got nothing you got a, a burnt up suitcase with a little bit of shreds i mean he got nothing out of this i guess you know he, he got reacquainted with nikki and although i don't feel like it's romantic i do think it is supposed to evoke the intimacy that he had with marie and i do feel like that may have helped him in some ways, because he's kind of messed up in this movie. Again, I feel like he has a lot of scenes where something reminds him of the past, and he misses a step. I didn't know whether this car bomb was one of those scenes. Like, he didn't see it until it was too late. Usually, Bourne is one step ahead, and in this case, he was behind the curve. And it's because he's lost in time. He's lost in his memories. I didn't think he was having a memory at this moment. I just thought... Yeah, he wasn't at the top of his game because he was trying to figure things out and not act. And as for the Marie parallels with Nikki, yeah, I felt like they were trying to shoehorn Nikki into the new Marie. They follow so many of those beats with her, but they are just going to discard her at a certain point in the film. Yes. She is no love interest. <laughs> She's a short-term passenger. Well, they did with Marie. That is true. That is true. Yeah, but they never shack up here. But it ended with a love scene with him and Marie, so she came back. We see Nikki again, but... We don't know if Bourne, after he swims, if he's going <laughs> to her. We really don't know. But I don't get that sense. I see that smile Nikki gives when she finds out Bourne <laughs> is alive still. She wants to hook up. She's probably into him. I don't get the sense that he's into her. We'll find out in two weeks, but if the trailers for Jason Bourne are anything to be believed, I don't think they've been hanging out together. Yeah, I can't see them getting the malt at the soda shop. It just, <laughs> it's not the vibe they're even going for. I mean, it feels 
Like she knows things that he can't remember. And so they're working together to piece the past together or what past there is to piece. Again, I don't feel like it's this movie's strength that it has a lot to show. Again, a lot of these things build and build and build. And this is a segment that exemplifies that. And yet I don't mind being in Morocco because it's got probably the best chase scene in the movie. So you're saying this is the best because I feel this Tangier chase, it goes on for a long time for me and I I lose interest in it. I'm excited when they're like on motorcycles or scooters. Yes, that was badass. Uh, Then they start running. It just goes on. I like when there's some hand-to-hand combat going on. I like that. But overall, this chase is too long for me. Again, cut some of this. My feeling was that the motorcycle chase felt inventive, especially, damn, going up a flight of stairs on a motorcycle, but we never see the face. I mean, it's too obvious. They had all the money. They could have CGI'd Matt Damon's face on a stunt double, but they are proud about all the practicality of their effects, and so they didn't want to do that, so we just don't see his face, and the hair doesn't quite match. And then when they get to the rooftop chase and the jumping through windows... I'm like, ew, you guys were bested by Casino Royale a year earlier. Yeah, I've always wanted to get parkour scene in these films, and I haven't got it yet. Oh, Arnie, because that movie was the absolute best parkour scene I've ever seen, does not damn this one as being awful. I mean, I really enjoy this. I mean, again, we see Bourne's cleverness. You know, I love the fact that he's like, I need a weapon. What can I do? So he throws an aerosol can into a fire, and it blows up, and it brings the cops to him. And he's like, good, I can get a gun now. You know, like, that's how he's thinking. like, oh, good, I want the cops to find me because I know I can take these guys and get their weapon (laughs) or or stealing clothes off a line because he knows that the rooftops are going to be lined with broken glass. You know, I think for the birds, maybe, or maybe because they have a parkour (laughs) problem. I don't know. but (laughs) Yeah, they do have those plastic spikes they put on signs around here in L.A. to keep the birds off of them. Yeah, I think that's what it's for. But I again, I like when they show me that Bourne is one step ahead. He's just not it's not just that he's tough. That wouldn't be very interesting to me it's that he's smart and the hardcover book is not as good of a weapon as the magazine because the magazine basically killed a guy (laughs) the hardcover book it gets a couple punches in but then it's thrown away these assets they're called in this movie in identity they were agents are these treadstone operatives or they this something else under blackbriar i think it's a blackbriar next level thing i mean they might as well be again i call it a rebranding i mean there's not a whole lot of difference it's the same same thing with a new label, yeah. They're still creating these super soldiers, I'll call them. Just not under the Treadstone name, because that one, that name has bad connotations to it. Yes, correct. They have no funding for Treadstone anymore, so they can't use the name. It's all about the dollars. I mean, they have black ops people in Iraq even now, but they, they don't go by Halliburton. And when a name gets in trouble, you move away from it. Like New Coke. Yeah, exactly. We just <laughs> we just don't want to be associated with with something like that. But we still see the need for it. I mean, no one at the top is recognizing they made a mistake. They just got caught and they're trying to bury the lead. And that's where Pam is interesting is because she is near the top and she could play ball. It would probably help her career. But at the same time, she has a moral quandary. I mean, she's horrified that they're like, oh, let's kill Nikki now. You know, like, let's just knock her off. (laughs) I mean, that's really, I think, where she 
completely breaks. I mean, she learned enough from Brian Cox to know that the boss is probably up to bad things and he's copped to some bad things. But at that point, this is where she goes rogue herself. And they cut a scene that I think would have helped a little bit with Pam's motivation is a scene where she's called in and given her walking paper, she is fired. All her cases are taken away from her. And then she's called back in to help Vozen out. Is that before she gets the call from the last movie? Yes, this is all beforehand. But when Vozen calls her to the lunch and offers to buy her a fat-free omelet is when she'd be coming back after packing her stuff to go home. That was what was so weird. It was that an afternoon meeting is interrupted and they're like, the boss wants to see you right now and they meet for breakfast. Okay, now I understand that. Okay. There was a whole subplot cut. I just can't believe all this was going on during that phone call at the end of the last film. Because that's when that phone call finally comes up. But that's kind of the fun of it. Yeah, the boss wants to see you right now was heading in to see Kramer and being told you're fired. Right. I, I like that. I This movie could have used it, honestly. I mean, to me, this movie's not lagging. I'm hearing from you, Jacob, that it is. But I could have taken a few more Pam moments because I feel like we're really heavy on boring action stuff. No, no, I agree with you. I want some kind of other entry because I'm kind of bored by Bourne in this film. Bourne is only good as a weapon. His chases just aren't as motivated. I'm not finding anything else new about him. So I want some other kind of developments going on yeah i mean that is the real crushing disappointment i know this had script problems that the original screenwriter tony gilroy turned in a draft but walked away he was actually apparently upset that some of his ideas were discarded from the last movie and he went off to do his own thing he basically made michael clayton instead which got a whole lot of oscar love and so i guess he made the right choice for himself but it left this story with other people to assemble was this not planned with the second one? Is, is this a true Tokyo Drift where they, they really <laughs> had to figure out how to fit these together? Was None of this was planned? None of this was really planned. They okay. had some ideas about things they would continue to do, but really it was them getting together and again saying, hey, that phone call doesn't make a whole lot of sense, and how could we fix that and really make it interesting for the next one. And my compliment is that I feel like the story they tell is coherent. But the downside of that is they've told a really simplistic story that doesn't have a lot of twists. There's not a lot of to discover. And that becomes crushingly apparent in this climax where we have the best and worst of it, where we have an incredible car chase and a confrontation with Albert Finney that is almost meaningless. Yeah, this, first of all, you're bringing in a new bad guy. We had Brian Cox in the last two. Brian Cox is scary. That's a good nemesis. <laughs> Hirsch, who? Who's this guy? Why do I care about him all of a sudden that Bourne confronts him? Yeah, we see him kind of in the background, a couple of phone calls and things, which tries to play him up, but I do wish there was something more to him. I wish that he didn't just feel, yeah, like a shade of Brian Cox. But the car chase is awesome, you gotta admit. I mean, this might be the, my second favorite one. I think I like Tangier a little bit more, maybe just for that shot where he jumps through the apartment window. But yeah, this is pretty great stuff. I mean, we're told Bourne's birthday is 41571. That's really code, 41571st Street. 
That's where this lab is that he was created. So you get this car chase. I love when he drives backwards off the roof of that parking garage, like there, and just crashes and rolls over and gets out. Yeah, there's some good <laughs> stuff here. And the way they have to report it, like, uh, born jumped off the roof. I mean, no yeah. one wants to call in their boss and tell them that. I spend more time in New York than I do any place other than my own house every year. And so when I think of a car chase in New York, I think of a lot of stalled traffic. And so when he gets in a car, I'm like, where's he going? Yeah, he just jumps off the roof. But finally, they get onto the streets, and he gets in a cop car. I'm like, okay, that makes sense. That is the one car that could get through New York traffic in a chase. Yeah. And they tried to build up, you know, they had two operatives. They had one they wanted to kill in Tangier, Dash, so they did. But they tried to build up like there's this super assassin, Paz, Edward Ramirez. Uh, originally, I think I heard it was going to be Gail Garcia Bernal, but they had a Latin actor specifically in mind, I think, in keeping with the Ludlum story of Carlos the Jackal, who was Venezuelan. And I think that they were really trying to say that this was someone that was just as good as Bourne. But I just never feel like that's true. I mean, I get that he's a badass. Bourne's already been supreme. He is the supremacy. Like, yeah, <laughs> I never fear anyone else other than him. Yeah, it's hard to build that up if you're not going to give him lines, a storyline. I guess that was what that London subway thing was. The fact that he shot an unarmed reporter is supposed to tell you he's super bad. He's as developed as Hirsch, like who I'm supposed to care about all of a sudden. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. These are not complicated. The, the most interesting character in this movie is Pam. Everyone else is pretty one-dimensional. And she's come over to Bourne's side. Like, Bourne, we find out that phone call was a whole, what, trick to get Noah out of the office so he could go into the office and get all the papers on Black Briar, and he then gives them to Pam, and she's the one that has to expose the story, not Bourne. That's a hell of a leap for her. Knowing that she was fired and she has a lot less to lose would have helped with this because when I watched this movie before watching the deleted scenes, I was like, wow, I understand she doesn't necessarily believe what's going on. But when that reporter was going around, they, they were using terms like traitor and treason. And I'm thinking again, what happened to Snowden after he revealed stuff? He's still on the run. He's in Russia. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but the leak, the leak they're really referencing, I think, is the one that happened in 2002, 2003, when people were trying to speak up and say there were no weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. There was specifically one agent who had tried to, to make that known. They made a movie about this, Fair Game, and she ended up getting exposed. Her name was leaked. And I think that that's really what they're playing off of here is the idea that if you speak up, you're going to be labeled a traitor and we're going to destroy your career. Yeah, I forgot all about that case. It was, you know... Valerie Plame, I believe, was her name. Yes, yeah. that's right. But that doesn't happen to Landy in this film, does it? She's, at the end, I mean, she's going to fax these somewhere. She appears to win because it's a Hollywood movie. Yeah, there's a Senate hearing at the end that she's testifying. It looks like things turn out good. I bet she's the defendant, though. Once again, looking at Snowden, <laughs> I'm like, these are not going to go well for her. Even if she's not going to be killed now, she might wish she had been. 
Well, I read it in this film that she was the hero, she saved the day, and that the news got out. Yeah, that's because this film lives in a fantasy world where magazines beat guns. <laughs> yeah, well, well, when we get to the next film, they'll undo all that. And Bourne has a small role in that. I mean, he's the one that actually hands her. He did the stealing from the safe and handing it to her after driving like crazy from assassins. I mean, it took a lot of sweat to to get it into her hands for her to do the deed, but it was a teamwork. But I kind of like that. I like the fact that they're uneasy allies. It, it fits that somehow that fate has brought these two together. But of course, we're really here at this address, the one that she gave, so that Bourne can finally confront Albert Finney. To me, this just kind of feels like what they were doing last week, where it was, okay, I'm so angry, I'm so angry, I'm so angry at you. Oh, wait, it was my choice. I have a role in this. I have to reflect on myself. Look at what they made you do. And I think that's a statement on the time, you know, again, yes. with the war in Iraq. It's easy to blame the government. It's easy to blame Bush. But we were kind of unanimously as a country bloodthirsty after 9-11. That's absolutely what they're going for. And were we surprised that Bourne volunteered? Again, I never thought he was kidnapped in the middle of the night and brainwashed to do this. I, I figured they'd want the best soldiers. He is one of them. He'd volunteer. That that's why this all falls flat for me. If you were a fan of the book, you might think that they'd work in the subplot that the original character lost his wife and child in Vietnam. I was waiting for that reveal. <laughs> So he enlisted in Medusa. It was this black ops operation. It was called Medusa. And so that is what they could have done. But I think that it's kind of unspoken that it was 9-11, right? I mean, that, that we all like signed on to do this kind of work because of the tragedy. We all stood on the steps of Congress and sang the National Anthem. I mean, the photo ops. Yeah, it goes back to all of that. I remember what the one time Congress was united is right after 9-11. Right. Yeah, you, the, the climate was such that people wanted vengeance without perhaps having the perspective to look at the whole picture. And so that is the message they want to send here. And I think it was probably more stinging in 2007 when Bush was still in office <laughs> and it feels nine years later. But by doing it that way, it also means that we don't really learn that much more new about Bourne, that we really... Anything that I imagined, I'm still wondering by the end of this movie. The fact that he volunteered isn't a revelation for me. No. The whole point of this scene is him going back to where it began for him and him getting his memory back. What does that mean? Not a whole lot for us because we don't really know <laughs> what he remembers other than seeing that, yes, he volunteered, he signed up, he killed some guy in the corner unarmed, tied up, hood over his head, and that was his induction. So we we get to see, we thought Germany was the first kill. Okay, so that wasn't even anyone we were supposed to recognize that he killed? No, no, I think it's supposed to be that he killed in absolute cold blood with no mercy, and that was his induction. Yeah, that, the fact that he did something horrible, again, we could cite many examples of where we went into a situation as Americans looking like heroes, and by the end of it, Abu Ghraib or, or what have you, atrocities that have been reported back from Iraq, that we ended up looking like murderers instead of heroes. And I think that that was what this moment was supposed to be. And he does get his memory back finally, which I thought happened at the end of the first film, if you remember. But he goes, I remember, I remember all of it. And I'm not going to kill you because you're not worthy of the star. I think it's to show his character evolution. He killed without mercy to get in. He's going to show mercy to get out. 
and he's still going to be shot for it. Although not by Paz. The assassin pays the favor for not being shot after the car chase by not shooting at him on the roof. The shots are actually fired by David Strathairn's character. They do the callback to when Bourne was with the professor in Bourne Identity. Look at what they take from you. And it's the words that Bourne kind of had a moment of sympathy for his attacker on that farm in France, and now it's what gets that other guy to let him go. Not that I think that other guy really ever was going to get out of that car. That was a bad wreck. I'm surprised he was able to make it to the rooftop. <laughs> yeah. And I'll say this. I like the symmetry of this trilogy, mm-hmm. like the bookends of Born floating in water. It's I like it. I think it's slightly heavy-handed. I mean, how many times can this guy get reborn? It's heavy-handed, but I like it. <laughs> Yeah, you want a heavy hand. You want a punch at the end. This movie hasn't felt like it's told a particularly strong story. By doing this, it does feel like the end of a trilogy, if not the end of a really tight movie. I'm going to kind of argue against the lack of story, though, because the last one had such a messed up story that was impossible to follow with the $20 million and Brian Cox's duplicity. This one, once things happened in the bus station in waterloo in london then it was going and i understood every bit of it and yeah it's a chase movie all these films are chase films that is just what a born film is and so i actually prefer this one's plot to the last one well then i'm curious to know what you think of the whole thing so jacob stewart do you recommend the third born film which should be called supremacy jacob let it go Never! Or just born three. <laughs> Cuz now playing is about completism, which is why we did Richard Chamberlain Born Identity. <laughs> you know, I, I look at not just the film, but where does it fall in a franchise? You know, going way back to Saw, which I'm going to have to revisit that franchise, I guess, next year or something. That last one is supposed to be the final one. It's supposed to reveal all. And, and I felt let down. And I feel like this is the third part of the trilogy. I know Damon's gone in the next film. Jeremy Renner's coming in. So, I, you know, this is the Bourne trilogy. I approach this third film. I want some answers this time. I want it to reveal something about this character. Now, there are technical aspects of this film that I didn't like. I talked about the camera work, just uh, all the screaming heads in, in office rooms. That Tangier scene goes on a little bit too long. I felt like little things be, could be cut, but the biggest frustration for me was that Bourne seems to be an afterthought in this film. So little is revealed about him. I found that disappointing. I, the first two Bourne films, I felt those worked together as two good films, you know, two-night miniseries. This third one feels like an afterthought, but yeah, the action's good. The, the chases are good. I like that stuff. I like Landy's story in this. So this gets a mild recommend, not as strong as those first two. And considering this one the weakest is an unpopular opinion I found out. After I watched the film, I went to go see what the reaction was, and people love this film. So I guess I'm in the minority. Stuart. And here it is. I thought I was going to be the one saying the third one is the weakest, but it's not a popular opinion. Most people consider this the penultimate. And so I've never agreed with that. Even when I saw it back then, I remember feeling vaguely disappointed that they had just built, 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 built up to nothing. And because I saw it at a drive-in where the speakers weren't very good and there was lots of things to distract me, I just really wasn't into it that much. Now, giving it my full attention in a home theater, I can appreciate it for the stunts. I mean, it is a great action movie. There's several good 
moments that I'll, I'll cherish. And I do think it shows that Bourne can be clever in a fight, but it doesn't show that Bourne can be clever about finding out who he is. That identity thread, that thing that was hopefully going to bind this trilogy has been lost. And so, yeah, to me, this is easily the worst of the three, which is only to say that, yeah, it's a mild recommend. I think that the other two were stronger films thematically and just in entertainment value. But but you really can't beat the set pieces. The, some of the best moments in the trilogy are here, but this is the worst of the trilogy. Mm, Got to disagree with you guys on that one. I Is it the best of the trilogy? I don't know. I actually really liked that original identity. And I feel like story-wise, identity is the only one that mattered. We've been stretching it out ever since that first film. So I'll have to wait till we finish Jason Bourne when I rank all the films. But this one's really good. It does have some story problems. And like I've said, they stop once the action gets started. And if you want a good explanation for why the action got started, it's kind of hard to find. And I do feel like Bourne's resolution at the end, the whole point of this is to tie up Bourne's story. There's no great third act twist, you know? If we go back to the Scream series, they say the third one is to revisit your assumptions and everything you thought you knew was wrong. Well, the closest we get is that Bourne volunteered, which, yeah, I think all three of us just kind of assumed that he wasn't kidnapped in the night from his job as a waiter and made a super assassin. So that wasn't that big of a deal. But you said that this one's weak thematically. This is the one where the themes and the commentary on life in the mid to late 2000s, I felt hit hardest. Again, with all of the wiretapping, Patriot Act, covert assassination. I think this one is strong thematically. I think this one has amazing action in it. I think Damon is good. I'm glad Julia Stiles has finally given something to do. This is a really solid recommend. Yeah, I mean, I guess I felt like all the themes that are here, they're more pronounced, but they were all in the last movie. I mean, I saw them there, so... The last movie was a muddle, though. No, well, we just disagree on that. To me, it's the best, by far. It needed tightening, and then it could have been. But the whole Brian Cox subplot made things unnecessarily complex. Well, at least we can all agree... All of these movies are better than any of the books, but if you want to hear extended thoughts on what I feel about Robert Ludlum's creation, please do join me over at Books and Nachos. I am covering that original trilogy, and if you're a big fan of the books, I'm sorry, I'm not, but I did give them my full consideration, and I have a lot of thoughts about them over there. You're making me rush over to hear your reviews and not rush out to buy the books. And I haven't even heard Books and Nachos yet. If I can just save one reader the pain of those subplots in Ultimatum. I can't wait to hear your analysis. And if you want more shows, we got something on Friday I think people are going to be excited about. Oh, wait, it's just Ghostbusters 2. Well... I think I'm going to disagree with you guys there, too, like I did here. Ghostbusters 2. I remember feeling a little put off by it in theaters, but coming around and really, really loving this movie with all of its wackiness and craziness that's going on. I keep hearing about people like you on the internet that have come around on Ghostbusters 2. I never wanted to revisit it after seeing it once, but who knows? I guess I have to. I haven't seen it since the 90s when I bought the DVD when it was a brand new first time released on digital disc so it's been god almost 20 years 
but I'm looking forward to revisiting it and seeing if with now playing Zyze, I feel as positively about it as I did. I know going into the next two Ghostbusters films, I have more optimism for this week's than next week's, but... Well, that's what's interesting about both these series is it's a changing of the guard. This is the last we're going to see of Matt Damon for a week. For a week. And the last we'll see of Bill Murray and crew, I think, for a week. There's supposed to be some cameo, so it might not be the last. Save it! I'm I'm going spoiler-free. I'm trying not to know. But, yeah, we're going to be talking about how franchises get rebooted next week, both with Ghostbusters and Born Legacy. I look forward to those shows. Yes, just to remind listeners, or if you haven't been hearing our plugs so far... With next week's Ghostbusters review, our donation drive is complete, and you can get up to 14 bonus podcasts. You can get 12 of them if you donate today, and then get the last two, but we're coming close to the end, and at the end of this month, they go in the vault. You're not going to have a lot of time after the new Ghostbusters is out to hear our review before it goes in the vault, and people who've emailed and posted and tweeted know we don't open that vault. (laughs) So, at least not unless there's a really compelling reason. So, please, we we could really use your support this year. This year, we're going to theaters so often, and downloads are high, and costs are up. We really could use support from more than currently the 0.8% of listeners who have donated. If you enjoy this show, I ask that you'd even consider... If you donated for 50 cents for every free show we put out, that would be $26 a year for the 52 free shows. And that would get you the three Men in Blacks, the two Independence Days, and all six 1986 films. And if you go just a little bit more than 50 cents a show, then you could also hear our reviews of the three Ghostbusters. That's a $35 or more donation. All the details are found by clicking the banner at the top of nowplayingpodcast.com. Please, don't make me sing Sarah McLaughlin to get you to donate. (laughs) The eyes of an angel. Whatever that thing is. I'll just put Pizza Dog on a video while Jacob sings that. (laughs) Pizza Dog would make us lots of money. (laughs) And we'll be back next week with the Born Legacy, Jacob Stewart. And until next week... This is where it started for us, and this is where it ends. Do you remember now? I remember. I remember everything. I'm no longer Jason. Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing's Born Retrospective Series. We hope you've enjoyed the show. Congratulations, soldier. Training is over. Come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week for another new Born movie review leading up to this summer's new installment. You talk about this stuff like you read it in a book. And while at NowPlayingPodcast.com, be sure to join our forums where you can discuss the Jason Bourne movies with other listeners. Everyone signs in and out. This is a serious place, serious work. It's not just to come in whenever you like. You're right. You're right. We didn't sign in. You can follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where we post announcements of new episodes and where the hosts post movie mini-reviews. 
Links to our social media pages are available on our homepage. Send them in to follow. Tell them to keep their distance. And in the NowPlayingPodcast.com archives, you can find reviews of other movie series, including The Fast and the Furious, Mission Impossible, Star Trek, Terminator, Predator, and many more. You think that Jason Bourne was the whole story? Sorry, there's a lot more going on here. Treadstone was just the tip of the iceberg. Find hundreds of movie review podcasts at NowPlayingPodcast.com. That was a D-track team we sent in there. I don't know what that means. It means they're good at what they do. If you want even more Now Playing reviews, place your order now for the first Now Playing book, Underrated Movies We Recommend. Get reviews of 125 films our hosts love. Now two years we're scribbling in that notebook. You can order the book by clicking the banner at the top of our homepage. Read, David, read. Everything you can get your hands on. I thought maybe we could help each other. How's that? Support from listeners like you. Help keep now playing, operating. What's this? Well, it's what money I've got. It isn't much, but it's a start. I don't need it, you do. Anyway, I'm stuck with you now. I've got an investment in you. <laughs> you can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. I don't suppose that'll do me much good to cry for help, huh? Not much. You can also show your love of Now Playing by shopping in our store, where you can buy Now Playing t-shirts, coffee mugs, mouse pads, and much more. The link to our Cafe Press store is available on our homepage. Get in the store. There's someone on your tail. Get in the store. Now Playing's Born Retrospective series is edited by Heath and Arnie. I told you we'd clean this up. It will be clean. Now Playing Credit Narration by Brock. Well, why don't you go upstairs and book a conference room? Maybe you can talk him to death. Now Playing is not affiliated with the makers or copyright holders of this film. The Jason Bourne films are the property of Universal Studios, and no infringement is intended. What is he doing? Is it a game? Is he warning us? Is it a threat? The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts, and may not reflect the opinion of Enganza Media Incorporated. Do you really expect me to believe that? <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> I can't believe it myself. How could I expect you to? The insanity is, it's the truth. Now playing is a Vinganza Media production, copyright 2016, all rights reserved, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated. I don't want to do this anymore. I don't think that's a decision you can make. Jason Bourne is dead. You hear me? He drowned two weeks ago. You're gonna go tell him that Jason Bourne is dead, you understand? Where are you gonna go? I swear to God, if I even feel somebody behind me, there is no measure to how fast and how hard I will bring this fight to your doorstep. I'm on my own side now. is there's four screens and you can just drive to whichever one you want to see next and this was the one that i thought looked the most appealing but yeah not necessarily simpatico here they're both violent i'll give you that <laughs> true story this past weekend marjorie and i on wednesday saw that our drive-in was doing a double feature of deadpool and x-men apocalypse and we're like well, we know what we're doing Saturday night. Then we saw X-Men Apocalypse, and we're like, we know what we're not doing Saturday night. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you saw it twice. I can't imagine third times is going to get better for you. <laughs> oh!
So you think Tokyo Drift should get an editing award too? They Tokyo Drift this movie. <laughs> it was my favorite of the series, I think. Maybe Fast Five. I don't know if I had a favorite. But yeah, I thought that was kind of fun. But uh, no, please don't give it an Oscar. Sorry, Vin Diesel. <laughs> he said it was going to win one for seven. <laughs> I recall that. And I also recall it not getting nominated. And we have another new bad guy, too, and that's... Stick? Ezra Kramer, Scott Glenn. Stick? Stick? Stick, from the new Daredevil on Netflix. Oh, yeah! If you enjoy this show, I ask that you'd even consider putting 50 cents a show in which would bring you to the $10 to get five bonus shows, the three Men in Blacks and the two Independence Days. It'd be $7. What? Really, if you did the math. If there's 14 shows at 50 cents. No, I'm saying, all right, let me rephrase. 50 cents for every show we put out for free on Tuesdays. Please donate so that we can do math better. (laughs) 